Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. Welcome, everyone. I'm really delighted to welcome my collaborators from both CODA and Deloitte to discuss our most recent post in Women in Health Innovation blog series. Before we get into that, maybe some introductions. I'm Sandy Leonard. I am the Chief Commercial Officer here at CODA. And let me hand it over to my colleague, Laura, to do a brief introduction. Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here today. Uh, my name is Laura Fernandez. I work as a Senior Statistical Director here at CODA. And I uh, am really looking forward to speaking about our latest blog post. We spoke about the first two podcasts that are focused on uh, what are the differences in real-world data. And the second one, we spoke about what is a fit-for-purpose database. And so we're very excited to be here today to talk about how to construct an ECA. And let me hand it over to you, Sash, for a brief introduction. Thank you, Sandy. Very happy to be here today. I'm Sesh Shinevasan, a product lead working uh, for Deloitte, focused on building data and analytics products for pharmaceutical companies. So my background is real-world data, clinical trial data, analytics, and uh, yeah, very happy to be here. Wonderful. Thank you both. Really excited for this. Now, throughout the series, we've taken a deep dive into the world of real-world data, what it is, why it's valuable, as Laura had hinted to, and how to start harnessing its potential to transform the drug development life cycle. Now today, we're gonna look at the future of real world data in action and really explore the world of external control arms or ECAs. Now, first off, Sish, we're, we're hearing a lot about external control arms, synthetic control arms, hybrid control arms, you name it. Can you give us a lay of the land and, and really an overview? What do these terms mean and how do they differ from one another? Yeah, absolutely. Before we jump right in, just very quickly, I think everybody's very familiar in the post-COVID world with what clinical trials are, but very quickly, in your typical randomized clinical trials, RCTs, you've got your two arms, you've got your investigational arm, and where you're testing the new drug, and you've got your control arm, uh, which is where it's typically a placebo or standard of care, right? But what typically happens is in a, in a placebo-controlled trials, typically your recruitment and retention slows down, which costs pharma billions of dollars, and they're always struggling. How can, how can they speed up these trials? Because it, it slows them down considerably, right? There are several reasons. Some reasons are like in rare diseases, it becomes extremely unethical to you know um, have a placebo arm. And then certain diseases, there's no established standard of care. Then what do you do, right? You cannot have a, a control arm. Arm. Or in third cases, patients are extremely hesitant, right? When you tell them that this is a, you know, a placebo arm trial, they don't want to participate in the trial, right? Because they definitely want to get better. So these are the reasons. This is where external control arms or ECAs come into picture, right? Which almost takes care of that control arm by almost mimicking that by pulling in data from external sources like your real-world data sets, like your large you know, EHR, your claims, your registries, or even prior completed 
clinical trials data, right? You're almost assembling this cohort from external sources. So that is your ECA, but it also goes by many other names. The next one that you, you talked about is SCA, synthetic control arm, right? So now there are certain theories where, you know, folks interchangeably use ECA versus SCA, but a small nuance when it comes to SCA, if you've applied some statistical methodologies to this external data to derive your cohort, then people tend to refer to that as SCA, right? So that's a small subtlety there. The next one are your hybrid controls. Now, this is the most interesting one. This basically mixes, it mix, brings the best of both worlds, right? It mixes the controls that you're recruiting as part of the trials with your external controls, like, you know, from your real world data. So it's the best. There are many, many benefits. The FDA strongly advocates that we're going to talk about all those details further into the podcast. But but these are the, the, the three things that we want to talk about right now. Wonderful. Really, uh, Sash, that, that's really interesting because what it prompted for me to think about is once upon a time, all we had was the standard RCT, where you had the control arm. And now there's a lot of different options that sponsors are able to consider and actually, you know, accelerate bringing new products in an efficient and an effective way to patients that are eagerly waiting for them. Laura, let me turn it over to you. Can you describe some of the best regulatory use cases for these ECAs? So lucky for us, we have several uh, used case examples uh, of regulatory submissions where real-world data has been used successfully, both at the FDA, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, and at the EMA, the uh, European Medical Agency. So the first example that comes to my mind, uh, it's a fairly old one. I think it's from 2020 or 2021 in multiple myeloma. This was a drug. It was a CAR-T therapy and then its brand name is Abecma for patients with highly refractory multiple myeloma. And so like the way Shesh uh, mentioned earlier, this was a patient population that is, uh, that's highly refractory. So in cancer, when you go beyond third line, uh, there are not many more therapies available for treating your disease. And so there is no acceptable standard of care. And in such situations, it's difficult to conduct a randomized clinical trial because you do not have an acceptable standard of care. So clinical trials end up being single arm in design. And because of the single arm nature of your trial, you are then limited by what kind of endpoints you can study. So in a single arm trial, your most uh, obvious endpoint is objective response rate which determines how many patients in the clinical trial had an objective tumor response, where the tumor completely shrank or disappeared, a complete response or a partial response. And so, but you cannot compare uh, your the benefit in terms of, of time to event endpoint, say progression-free survival or overall survival. And so to do that kind of analysis, you need a comparator arm and so what they did in this particular trial for ABECMA is they created an external control using real-world data coming from uh, five different data sources, three of which were from EHR, and COTA was one of those data sources that they used to pull data, and then you applied the same inclusion-exclusion criteria to patients in this external trial so that they look similar to the patients in the single-arm trial that received the investigational arm. 
And so what you're trying to do over here is mimic what we call randomization because essentially you cannot randomize these patients. So you try to mimic this randomization by matching patients exactly on certain key baseline uh, demographic characteristics. And so you can then say that whatever differences you then see in outcomes can be ascribed to the treatment that they received. And so this drug was successfully submitted uh, to both the FDA and the EMA. It went through a very good approval process. The FDA, in their review of the application, mentioned that having this external control uh, trial arm helped them to understand like the treatment heterogeneity in this patient population. It gave them a way to contextualize uh, the results that they saw in the single arm trial and also help them understand uh, how difficult it is to treat patients in this patient population. So that was one of the earlier successful examples. Since then, there have been more that have used real-world data. Brianzi is another, actually another CAR-T therapy uh, also in DLBCL. We also have uh, examples like PROGRESS where they used uh, real-world data coming from registries for a successful application uh, at the FDA. So, so yes, tons of good examples of using real-world data as external controls. And the examples are so helpful for sponsors and the partners that are supporting them in, in the development program to really understand what's worked and, and, and potentially be able to try to identify why it's, it's worked and, and why it was supported by the FDA. But ultimately, I think we all really do seek to get some guidance from the FDA. And so recently, they did publish guidance around accelerated approvals. I'm curious, Laura, how will this impact the use of the ECAs from your perspective? So to give some context, uh, how is an accelerated approval different from, say, a regular approval? So what often happens, especially in oncology, is that uh, when you see when you see substantial uh, evidence that a drug works, and uh, in terms of a surrogate endpoint and overall response rate is surrogate endpoint, you do not want to wait uh, for another two or three years to have mature data on overall survival, the time to event endpoints. And overall survival is the time until a patient dies. And so you want that data to be mature. But at the same time, in the process of waiting for this data to mature, you do not want potentially beneficial therapies to be kept away from patients, you know, oncology patients, from receiving these beneficial therapies. So the US FDA and even the EMA have a similar idea. In the US, it's called the accelerated approval. In the EMA, it's called uh, the conditional approval. And the idea is that you show data in terms of overall response rate, a binary endpoint, that uh, your ORR is better than uh, available therapy at that point. And you promise to do something, what is called like a full registrational trial, a randomized trial, to show clinical benefit in terms of overall survival or PFS or other time to event endpoint. So it's a conditional approval. But what happens, and there are so many reasons as to why a sponsor then is unable to go ahead and complete the full clinical trial, a randomized trial. We can get into that later. But because of all these different reasons why a sponsor is unable to do the trial, the Oncology Center of Excellence, OCE at FDA, came up with this project frontrunner, an effort to ensure that sponsors actually complete their trial. 
And as part of that effort, they came up with this guidance on accelerated approval, asking sponsors to have their randomized trial to show the full benefit, either enrolled, fully enrolled, or midway through, before they are uh, seeking an accelerated approval. So there are lots of implications of that on how real-world data could be used in this whole setting. We can talk more about that. Do we have any solutions for that? And, or how could real-world data actually help in that context? So in the context of using real-world data in this accelerated approval, one of the trial designs that uh, Shesh had mentioned earlier was this hybrid clinical trial, right? So in this hybrid clinical trial, what actually happens is you have unequal randomization. Typical randomization ratios are one is to one, where for every one patient on your investigational arm, you assign another patient on your control arm. So if it's a 300 patient clinical trial, you will have 150 patients on your investigational arm and another 150 on your control arm. So what you could do is, in this particular trial design, patients are hesitant to participate because typically in oncology, patients participate in a clinical trial to get the new investigational therapy. They can get the standard of care without participating in a clinical trial. So the incentive to participate in a clinical trial is to get the new therapy for them and not to treat their disease. And so with equal randomization, you have equal probability of getting the investigational or the control or the, or the standard of care. But if you have what is called unequal randomization, say five is to one, where you assign five patients to uh, the investigational arm and only one patient to the control arm in your or the standard of care in your clinical trial. So there's a higher probability for a patient to get the investigational therapy. And so they are more likely to participate in the clinical trial. So your enrollment, uh, the time to enroll patients is shorter. So you can, you can then complete your clinical trial much faster. But then what happens from a stats point of view, statistical point of view, is that you lose power because you have unequal randomization. You do not have enough power to detect a difference between the two arms. And so what you can do is the remaining four patients, right, that you did not randomize to the control arm, you can get those four patients from an alternative source, like a real-world data source. It can either be EHR data, a completed clinical trial, a past completed clinical trial, or registries. So you can, or you can even pull them all together. And so a hybrid design allows you, it gives you the best of both worlds. It has this concurrent uh, control arm with fewer patients where they are randomized to. And then you supplement the remainder of the patients from uh, these real-world data sources to get like a full, uh, almost equal randomization at the end to look at your differences uh, between the two arms. So one of the ways that you get an accelerated approval is by showing an intermediary or a surrogate endpoint. And your surrogate endpoint is based on the patients who are treated in the investigational arm only. So in this particular trial design, you can imagine like two different time points, an earlier time point where you analyze the data only for your objective response rate based on all the patients that you assigned to your investigational arm and you can get your accelerated approval. And the remainder of the patients who are on the control arm, you follow them on longer for your overall survival or progression-free survival. And using the same trial, 
you can then fulfill this requirement of Project Frontrunner or this accelerated approval guidance where you fulfill the requirement of completing the, ran uh, completing the randomized trial and you can get your full approval. So this is a very excellent way, efficient way of improving patient participation, patient adherence. It increases the diversity of clinical trials and it also meets all these objectives that the FTA is so much concerned about in terms of uh, clinical trial completion. Excellent. Well, this is fantastic, the, the way that both of you have kind of set the stage. I'd love for us to now dig a bit deeper into the actual blog post and, and how you laid everything out, because I think it, it really will help you know, sponsors and their partners to, to think about what are the steps that they need to consider. So actually in the blog post, you, you both outline the five steps for building the best possible ECA. Now let's start with number one, clearly define the scope and objectives of the research question at hand. You should always start with that research question. So Sash, I'm going to hand it to you. Can you give us an example of how a sponsor could actually address this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But before I jump into this, Sandy, one one thing, when Laura was explaining that, it was amazing explanation, Laura. Like, I was thinking that the whole thing that sponsors are looking for, right? Let me let me design a cheaper, faster trial. Hybrid controls give such a, a great option to achieve that, right? You can immediately improve the power. You can statistically, like, power up your analysis. And like you pointed out, right, patients are not hesitant anymore, the trials are faster, and by using real-world data, you can incorporate, you know, certain variables that are routinely not captured, like patient-reported outcomes or caregiver outcomes. You can bring all of that into the mix. So I think um, it's an amazing option. Now let me let me talk about what you asked about, Sandy. So yeah, how should sponsors be thinking about this? So there are two things first, like for any, you know, success of any scientific study, it relies on well-defined research question, right? Of course, the same applies in the scenario as well. So before sponsors, you know, start anything, they should think about, you know, what is my study population, right? What is the exact disease indication? What are the calendar periods that I'm going for? And do I have the right variables, right? So I can capture that treatment exposure that qualifies that patients entering into the cohort. And like Laura explained very well a few minutes ago, like you need a certain set of variables that can define your baseline characteristics for the two cohorts, right? So you can assign like the benefit to just the, the drug itself, right? So how can you make sure that you have all of that available? So clearly documenting all of that is, is step one, defining it and documenting it. And most importantly, like, you know, typically what you do is you have your inclusion exclusion criteria for your investigational arm. And to construct your external control arm, you typically take those inclusion exclusion criteria and apply it on these external data sets, right? So it sounds simple, but it's not that straightforward, right? Because sometimes the definitions that you have in your RCT may not be available in, in RWD. Then what do you do? A good example, let's take an example, is your RESIST criteria, right? That's almost the gold standard, you know, to assess treatment outcomes in your solid tumor trials. And, you know, that's, you're not going to find that in your real-world data because it's, you know, repeated measurements, repeated scans at predefined time points. So you're not going to find that in a real-world data set. So if, if, you, if you run into situations like this, and you will, then what do you do? So that's where, you know, 
thinking about it clearly, like how am I going to select my real world data sources and how am I going to address for this, right? If, if something is, is not available that I'm looking for an RCT and what sort of measures am I going to put in place? So you need to think about all of this very clearly, document this. And another important piece is timing, right? It's, mm. it's super important when it comes to this. So researchers have to consider these key questions and what is the role of PCA, right? How is this applicable here? Right at the beginning of the project planning process, it cannot be something that you're thinking about later on and just, you know, slapping on the study because regulators are, you know, they extremely frown upon this. And, you know, there are several examples where that has actually worked against the submission because it happened much later in the, in the project planning phase. So be very mindful of when you're doing that aspect. And the biggest reason is because it introduces bias, right? Because you, know, you could potentially be cherry picking if you've already looked at how your results look, right? If you're doing some ad hoc analysis on the go. So that's the biggest reason. Like they advise that you need to document all of this right at the very beginning. So yeah, those are some of the things that sponsors should do, right? Like clearly defining your objectives and uh, looking for, you know, the inclusion exclusion criteria variables and also thinking about the timing and deciding that, you know, UCA is the option for me to go and documenting everything right at the beginning. Yeah, th those are those are great points. I mean, when you're thinking about the research question at hand and then being able to, to translate that back to, is there real world data that actually can support that research question? Is it, like you said, is it actually even captured in a real world setting versus a more controlled clinical trial setting? So really great points and, and areas for us to think about. As we continue on and start to think about the, the second step, which is choosing the right ECA design, to ensure maximum comparability, you know, maybe I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Laura. You know, Sesh just covered some of this earlier in the podcast. Some of the differences between ECAs and synthetic, and looks like one of the one of the new and exciting ways is the hybrid. But in the blog, you actually mentioned three types of ECAs, and and how do sponsors determine which one they should actually use? Yes, so very good uh, a segue into how to make a selection for your ECA. Uh, once you have your research question, what you then have to decide in the process of defining a research question, you also have to make a justification as to why you need to use an ECA, right? And that could be the reason, uh, several reasons, because there is no acceptable standard of care, difficult to enroll patients in a randomized trial, it's a rare patient population. So, so you have to give a justification as to why you need to use an external control arm. And so now what are the different ways you could create your external control arm? If this is a disease that has been very well studied in other clinical trials, which means that there are a lot of clinical trials that have compared their drug to an existing standard of care multiple times. And a good example for this would be the lung cancer trials when you had all these PDL1 drugs. So all the PDL1 drugs in lung cancer were compared to your chemo doublet, cisplatin and pemetrexid, right? You had the same chemo doublet being used in all these different clinical trials that had PDL1 A versus the same chemo doublet. PDL1, B versus the same chemo doublet, right? So imagine you have five different clinical trials that have studied the same drug in, uh, uh, sorry, have, have had the same control arm. 
So now you have data from five different completed clinical trials that are quite contemporary in the sense that they have been completed in the last three or five years. So if you are now planning to study a new drug in the same disease setting, you could potentially recycle the patients that have been studied in these five different clinical trials and apply appropriate statistical methods and create a synthetic control arm using this historical clinical trials. You could just use the data from a single uh, clinical trial control arm, and that would be what's called a historical control arm. Or you could mix the patients from these five different control arms and create a synthetic control arm. So that is your option one. What if you do not have access to this particular setting where the drug has been studied repeatedly in the same standard of care in, say, multiple clinical trials? You can then go to a contemporary data source. In our previous blog post, we said one of the features of a fit-for-purpose real-world database is that it should be complete, it should be comprehensive, and it should be contemporaneous. So a contemporaneous data source would be like EHR, or registry data source, where you have patients who are on this current standard of care in real time, who are actually receiving it right now, you know? So so you could use the information from these patients and create a contemporaneous real-world external control arm. Again, there are statistical methods, how you can do this matching, propensity scores, balancing, stratification, to identify an appropriate set of patients that are similar to the patients that you're studying in your clinical trial. The third one that uh, we talked about briefly earlier is the hybrid uh, trial design, where you have a concurrent control arm in your randomized uh, clinical trial but you supplement it uh, with patients from your external data source. And in this particular instance, you can supplement it either from a completed clinical trial, the control arm from those patients, or you could even supplement it from patients from a real-world data source. So this is really good because it allows you to have, uh, sometimes the, the concerns are that, uh, are, is your real-world data source contemporaneous enough? And so having a concurrent control arm allows you to show that your real-world data is contemporary to what you're seeing in the clinical trial. It also helps you to show that it is in some sense similar. And uh, if it is uh, similar, it increases your confidence in actually borrowing this information from your external control arm into your concurrent control and creating this augmented uh, supplemental arm in this hybrid trial design. So, so depending upon your setting, depending upon access to data, the disease setting, how rare the patient population is, and what is the current standard of care, you could go for either one of these designs. And so uh, that's what we touched upon in the blog and some of the ways to choose the appropriate design. Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, seeing all of these different options, I think, is, comes back to, again, what we talked at the beginning around making sure we're clear on the research question. But then as we start to move forward, it's really kind of stepping us into into step number three, which is identifying the actual fit-for-purpose data sources to deliver on that ECA. Fit-for-purpose is something that we are consistently talking about and hearing. And I think it's a critical piece at any time we're using real-world data, making sure that we're using the right data to address the right questions and understanding the, the strengths and limitations. 
So, Sash, you know, we've talked a lot about this fit for purpose in the past. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the importance of this specifically in the context of an ECA? Absolutely. And you said it right, Sandy. It is so important. We've, you know, wrote a blog about it. We've done a podcast on fit for purpose data. So we've talked extensively about this here. But in the context of ECA, there are, of course, a couple of things that, that should be noted. So, you know, any fit for purpose data should be relevant, reliable, timely, and complete, right? So let's focus on those four pieces in the context of ECA. What do we mean by when we say relevant, right? Do I have the you know, right external population with the disease indication that I'm looking for? Do I have the right exposures? Do I have the right covariates? The point that Laura was trying to make earlier as well, like do I have the right covariates where the baseline characteristics are similar between the, my two groups that I'm comparing, right? Things like age, gender, geographic distribution, and many more as well, right? So do I have all of that, right? Is the data relevant? That's number one. Number two, is it reliable, right? Do I have enough patients to power the study? Because again, if the study is underpowered, it's not going to cut it, right? And, and do I have the right covariates, right? So that's number two. Number three is, is it complete? And uh, I think Laura was talking about this a little bit earlier as well. Do I have all of the key variables, right? If I don't have the key variables, can I use some proxies? Or can I supplement it with, you know, additional data sets? And can I, should I be planning for some sensitivity analysis because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm missing certain elements. I have to test the impact of that missing data elements, right? So to make sure that, you know, the controls are free of bias, right? So can I do all of that? So that's, that's number three, right? Looking for completeness. Number four is timely. And again, don't want to go into detail because Laura just covered it, right? Is it contemporaneous, right? Am I pulling this external source in, in the right right time? Like it's it's not 10 years old, right? Where, you know, your your treatment standards have changed, you know, so so it's not relevant anymore. So am I am I capturing the external control population in a timely manner, right? To to establish that contemporaneous nature. So those are the key four key things that you should think about, right? Relevant, reliable, complete, and timeliness. Couple more things. The uh, one thing is, you know, these days FDA is mandating diversity plan for clinical trials, right? So it's not an option anymore because diversity in clinical trials is, of course, the most critical piece. So this is where using external controls or even real world data becomes super important because it lets you conduct that feasibility, right? You can check like, hey, am I going to meet my diversity goal or not, right? Given my inclusion exclusion criteria, you can test that out on, on real world data sets, right? And then come up with strategies. If, if you are falling short, how, how am I going to uh, take care of that? Which is all part of that diversity plan that you have to submit to FDA anyway, right? That's the first piece. And the second piece that's very important with fit for purpose data is watch out for data pooling, especially when you're using real world data, you know, it's kind of pulled from so many different sources. So, you know, ask your vendors about the data governance, the provenance or the transformation logics mm -hmm. that have been applied. A good example is ECOG scores, right? Which is typically used in most oncology trials, right? Can the vendor provide you supplemental information, which talks about the data collection, the transformation, you know, and how it's getting delivered to you. So those are some of the things that sponsors have to think about when they're thinking of fit for purpose data. Definitely. And I think to add on to that, it's that last point you made of being prepared to have those conversations with the regulatory authority and giving them insight as to where, you know, the provenance of the real world data and the different elements that have come from that. And that leads 
very smoothly into what our step four is, which is creating that analysis plan. So, Sesh, I'm going to ask you to dig into a little bit more of that as well. I mean, you know, we're always having those conversations around when and how should you engage with regulatory authorities when you're, especially when you're thinking about an ECA. And I think I would assume, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth that your guidance, I know Laura's is as well as early and often, right? But as we think about that, how should we think about the analysis plan as well as the data in those conversations and, and what those regulatory requirements might be as it relates to ECA? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think, don't want to repeat, but the earlier the better, but let's talk a little bit about that analysis plan, right? Like when should you have it assembled and what should be part of that analysis plan? So it kind of ties everything that we've talked about, right, for the past few minutes. So, you know, you, you start by like documenting your choice of like, do I even need an ECA, right? You need to start documenting that piece and even the choice of real world data, which we just talked about, right? Especially capturing all the inclusion exclusion criteria for the study very clearly and the availability of those key variables, especially the covariates that are going to immensely influence how close your control population is to your treatment, right? So that way it's free of bias. So kind of documenting all of this very clearly. And one very important piece is because there's no randomization, right? When, when we're talking about ECA, not the hybrid one, but just regular ECA, you have to make sure that your investigational and your control arm are as close as possible, which is where those patient characteristics, such as demographic factors, your comorbidities, your disease severities, all of that come into picture. And once you know that the two populations, at least at a baseline level, are, are somewhat similar, you can apply some of the techniques that Laura talked about, right? From your matching to weighting to your, you know, multivariate regression or even advanced options like, you know, random forest cane and so all of that. But what do you do when your external control differs notably from your, you know, your investigational arm in terms of patient characteristics? So that's when you start thinking about, you know, restricting the external data to only the subgroup where the base characteristics are comparable. So start thinking about your sensitivity analysis, your subgroup analysis. And another important piece that should be part of this analysis plan is how are you planning to handle bias, right? Because that is a huge thing. A lot of the FDA reviews, the submission packages cites this as one of the shortcomings, right? There are so many different types of biases, like from you know, post-talk analysis to selection bias to immortal time bias, confounding bias. Data missingness is another big piece. So make sure that you're handling for all of this and you're documenting everything clearly. And if you've not conducted sensitivity analysis, document that too, right? Why haven't you done that? Actually, our next post is going to talk in detail about all the different biases, right? So this is the what, what should be part of the plan, right? The when, your, your question that you started with, you should lock in the analysis plan and have that finalized early on, right? Early on in the study planning phase. So let's say you're planning to use an ECA in the, you know, phase two or phase three, don't wait till you're about to begin, like start thinking about it way the beginning of phase one, right? You should be that advanced. So that way, when you finally, your packet makes it to FDA, you're not getting cited for, you know, not, not doing it early enough, right? So those are the things and, you know, what should be part of it and the timing is very crucial. 
So as a former FDA statistical reviewer, I have to I have to jump in and say that pre-specification is something that's like highly important. Like we say, pre-specified analysis, right? And having pre-specification implies that you are not reacting to something that you see in your data. So, and when you react to something that you see in your data, that obviously introduces bias. And uh, as an FDA regulator, what we are most looking out for is not having these biased analysis where it is a data-driven analysis and uh, everything goes downhill from there. So, so to give that, uh, to, to maintain what we call trial integrity, it helps to show that you are planning ahead. You're thinking, uh, looking at the big picture. And so uh, in one of the trial designs that we mentioned, for example, the single arm trial, where you have a single investigational arm, and this often happens in a phase two trial, where you, where all of a sudden you see activity in your phase one, uh, one of the dose levels, and then you go into this expansion cohort and you recruit a whole bunch of patients, and then you have so many patients on a single investigational trial, and now you want to show that it's comparable to something, to the standard of care. So, so before you finish your, before your patients have completed the observation period in your single arm trial, you should start looking at uh, your analysis plan for this external control. Get your analysis plan in place, get it uh, submitted to the FDA as part of your IND, because you obviously have an IND in place for your expansion cohort. Get it reviewed by the FDA, get, uh, get it signed off, and then do the analysis. A complete no would be analyzing the data for your single arm trial and then going to the FDA and saying, oh, yes, we now want to do an external control and these are our patients that we are matching. So that's a complete no. So please do it ahead of time. Pre-specification. Well, and, and, and Laura, you, you kind of jumped in then as to, you know, the last question I was going to pose to you, which is around the final step, number five, of understanding what are those detailed requirements. And, and I think you just really hit it on the head, which is, you know, all along we've been talking about understanding the research question, understanding fit for purpose data, documenting, 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 making these decisions early and having them documented and engaging early. Is there anything else that you would that you would suggest, especially with you know all of the guidance that is coming out, just to ensure that a sponsor and their partners would have the most successful engagement bringing forward an ECA for regulatory decision? Yes, sometimes I have to admit that there seems to be a lot of information that is out there, and it seems a little hard to stay abreast of what's going on. But you have to note that these are very exciting times. You know, the 21st uh, Century Cures Act, I think it started in 2016, started off this whole process of like looking at these alternative data sources in clinical trials. And so there's a lot of, lot of interest, lots of excitement, lots of possibilities. And uh, the FDA is doing its part in trying to stay current and in trying to give us uh, most up-to-date advice in terms of guidance documents, in terms of research publications, and uh, in terms of just uh, different presentations. So what I would say is the Oncology Center of Excellence, for example, does a very good job in maintaining updates on the web page. It has a very good Twitter handle. I would encourage uh, folks to like, you know, stay current by looking at what are updates that you see on those uh, different media outlets uh, from the uh, FDA. And uh, 
reading those guidance documents actually is a very good uh, first place to say, what should I say, current in the current thinking of the FDA. So because those are actually uh, cited, even though even though they are draft guidance documents, uh, because they're not finalized as yet, we still uh, look out to them as the current thinking of the agency. So do uh, assimilate what's out there in those guidance documents. <laughs> That that is that is wonderful guidance and suggestion there. And and as we cl- as we close out, Sach, I wonder if you've got any last tips or tricks or or key points that you want to make sure that our listeners walk away with. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing, in addition to what Laura said, that helps me is listening to experts in the industry, mm. right? Like Laura, just hearing you say as a former you know reviewer, like some of the points that you made are super helpful. And you're gonna you're not gonna find that in in you know tons of draft documents. So I would say that's another small tip that they can use. But when it comes to kind of pulling together everything we talked about, right? Real world data is super helpful in the entire clinical trial planning, right? Like the, the whole spectrum. But just be mindful, like when you're conducting exploratory versus when you're going for that regulatory grade analysis, the point that Laura was trying to make. Because if you start merging the lines between the two, you are definitely going to get called out by the FDA. And so many packages have been like rejected or or withdrawn because of that. Right. So so just be mindful of that. There is a big place for real world data. But just make sure those boundaries are very clear, especially anything that you're going for, scientific rigor or regulatory grade. Just wanted to make that point just to tie in the whole conversation together. Excellent. Well, it has been a fantastic conversation with the two of you. I really look forward to what's going to come next, which is actually our upcoming blog post. We had a a little sneak peek there around bias as we consider real world data and real world evidence. Until then, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much and look forward to talking with you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real-world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.